I was recently tasked with writing an article on the halachic perspective toward Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. There isn't a whole lot of classic halacha on cryptocurrency, as you might imagine. The contemporary poskim who discuss cryptocurrency discuss it from the perspective of the general halachic discussion of the nature of money. In particular, the 19th century discussion on the nature of modern money, and that's going to be the theme of our talk tonight. The, as we often discuss, there are some shilas that are timeless. They could have been discussed by any posik in the last couple of thousand years. There are other types of questions which are very much a product of their time. The question is discussed, the question arises in a very particular time in history, in the evolution of society and civilization, because the circumstances that give rise to the question weren't present before that. The chuvas we're going to discuss tonight, a, a medley, a series of chuvas on paper money, were all written during the 19th century, maybe the very late 18th century, and they, they were all written around this time because that's when paper money began to become ubiquitous. Apparently, paper money in Europe and the Western world really, really begins in the 17th century already, really begins in the mid to late 1600s, where goldsmiths began issuing notes for, uh, for the gold that they held, and gradually throughout the 17th and 18th century, banknotes became common, but they really hit their stride in the 19th century, and that's why we have many postkim, many of the great 19th century European postkim, discussing the nature of banknotes. And much of their discussion is in turn relevant to the, the modern discussion of cryptocurrency. We're not really going to get into that tonight. We're just going to focus on what the great European postkim of the 19th century said about banknotes. So just a little bit of context, a little bit of historical context. I listened today to a share by the incomparable Ravasher Weiss on Bitcoin. He was just magnificent. He had a grasp of, he modestly noted he's not an expert on cryptocurrency. He thinks he understands some of the basics, but he was brilliant. He, he went through a survey of the, the history of money, the history of cryptocurrency, the nature of cryptocurrency. Brilliant as always. But basically, a, a brief history of, of money. So we know that for much, of, for much of history, money was what we call commodity money. Money was, items were used that had intrinsic value, but they were standardized by societies, by governments as coins, as, as money, typically gold, silver, you know, they used to say salt in the Roman Empire, cigarettes under uh, in certain communist countries, but they were basically items that were generally considered valuable. They were formed into standard-sized units and were used, uh, were used as, a, as, a form of, as a form of currency. This was true for much of history until they began with the banknotes in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century in Western Europe, at which point paper money, paper of course had very limited value, certainly paper with words written all over it had very little intrinsic value at that time, but it was what the paper represented that was valuable. The very first banknotes were not issued by governments or even by government central banks, they were issued by private entities, goldsmiths in the 17th century, general, general commercial banks in the 18th century, the 19th century. They were, they were banks, pe entities people trusted that, were, that would be stable, that would be reliable. These banks would issue promises to pay the bearer, to pay whoever presents the note, to pay them a certain amount of money in, in gold, in real money, in other words. And these were essentially IOUs, but they were freely transferable, they were payable to the bearer. These would be issued by, again, individuals or more likely institutions, banks, and so on, would issue these, would issue these private banknotes. Initially, of course, there's no reason to assume they were legal tender. They were simply private contracts, private agreements to pay the bearer, to pay the bearer the sum specified. They weren't even standardized denominations originally. Originally, they would just, uh, you went to a bank, you gave the bank a certain amount of money, $1,000, and 12 cents, and they would issue you a banknote saying, we, the bank, Bank of England, so-and-so, we, the bank, agree to pay the bearer $1,000.12, and that would then be freely tradable as a banknote worth, if you believe in the security of the bank, it would be worth $1,000.12. 
Eventually, banknotes became legal tender. Governments in Europe decided that these notes would be considered legal tender. They, were, they, 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 were, they had to be accepted as payment of debts and so on. Eventually, governments gave their central banks the monopolies on the issuance of banknotes. Private banks can no longer issue these banknotes. The Bank of in England, there was a bank act that, that gave the... Only the Bank of England had the right to issue banknotes. But still, for a while, the banknotes were still, were still actually represented promises to pay. The, 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 even if it was issued by the government, by a central bank, even if it was backed by the power of law, and it was, you, you were required to consider it legal tender, it was still a note that actually said that you can get paid a certain amount of actual uh, gold or something. Until finally, in the mid to late 20th century, governments began to completely decouple Governments completely decoupled these banknotes from any underlying uh, specie, any underlying gold. At this point in time, the dollar represents nothing more than the, the will of the United States government. It, it's backed by the full faith and trust of the United States government, but there's no actual promise to pay you anything. At this point, there's no gold standard, there's no anything standard. The banknotes simply bear their entire, uh, their entire meaning is simply that the government ascribes it meaning nothing more and nothing less. This background is important to keep in mind when we consider the postkim who discuss banknotes. It is, unfortunately, it's not always clear what type of banknotes they're discussing. They, they often use the term banknoten, banky, words that clearly translate to banknotes, although, again, without being an expert, or without being a historian of the period, they're, they're writing in different countries, different jurisdictions, different decades, different centuries. It's often hard to know exactly what the nature of these banknotes were. Sometimes it's evident from the tshuva what, what they assumed these banknotes were. But generally speaking, this is the story, the, the banknotes of the late... The Post can begin to dis- discuss banknotes in Europe in the, in the late 18th and early 19th century, at which point we have a string of tshuvas, of other halakhic writings, discussing what the halakhic perspective of banknotes are. Now, broadly speaking, there are two possible categories that banknotes could fit into in halacha. One of them is money, what the Gemara calls kesef, matbea, the equivalent of matbea. The other category is stuff, commodities, payrus, non, non-money, items of value. Postcom generally assume that there's a, there's a third category also, I should say. The third category is shtaros, instruments, documents or instruments. For example, an IOU is a star, a check is a star. It's a, it's a document that has no intrinsic value, but is value because it represents value somewhere else. An IOU is worth money because it represents actual money or actual items of value that will be paid, but that hopefully will be paid by the debtor to the creditor. These are the three halakha categories that are relevant for our purposes. Matbea, or kesef, which is money. Shtaros, which are instruments. And everything else, normal property, which is just metaltalin, paris, just commodities, just stuff. So the question was, which of these three categories do banknotes fit into? Postkim generally, postkim pretty much universally assume that it fits into one of these three. The question is, which one? When you're dealing with Bitcoin, of course, we're not really going to see any chuvas on Bitcoin. When you deal with Bitcoin, of course, there is a fourth possibility, that Bitcoin is simply nothing. It's simply math and computer code. It simply isn't an actual thing. It doesn't represent any actual thing. But when it comes to the banknotes, the, that which were tangible items, which were also familiar items, people understood them. They weren't, they weren't the puzzling abstraction, the unintuitive abstractions of cryptocurrency. Postkim pretty much universally assume they fit into one of these three categories, which again are either ordinary property, like a book or a table or a bushel of wheat. That's called payros or uh, taltalin. That's one possibility. Second possibility is kesef. Money, third possibility, is shtaros. In the case of the banknotes, Post can pretty much assume they fit into one of the two categories of either matbea or shtaros. The question is which one? And that's relevant for a variety of halachic, uh, variety of halachic context. There are a number of different halachas that behave differently, that have different rules when we're dealing with, whether we're, depending on whether we're dealing with matbea, with money, or with shtaros. So the postkim were with the postkim were concerned to uh, to pin down what exactly banknote are banknotes are are they matbea or are they shtaros? So we're going to see three or four 
central chuvas, which are representative of the general discussion, some of the most important chuvas on the topic. One is by Ramashulam Igra, two are by the Chasim Sofer, and one is by the Heish of Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Teitelbaum. They were all roughly the same time. Rabbi Teitelbaum was virtually an exact, and, and maybe one by Rabbi Shlomo Kluger as well, uh, one final one. They were, th- these were all sort of contemporaries. They, they were all roughly around the same time period. Rav Ramosha Teitelbaum and the Chasim Sofer were almost exact contemporaries. Chasim Sofer was born in 1762 and died in 1839. Rav Moshe was born in 1758 and died in 1841. Rav Moshe was one of the earliest of the great Hasidic poskim. He was the author of, famously, the Yismach Moshe, but his halachic work is Heshev Moshe, Tshuva's Heshev Moshe, an outstanding Hasidic Talmud Chachem of that time. The Chasim Sofer, of course, is one of the most famous halachists of the past 500 years founder of the whole Hungarian school, one of the most influential and uh, important postkim of the past half a millennium. Ramashulam Igra was actually the Chasim Sofer's predecessor in in Pressburg, in the city of Pressburg. He was actually a little bit earlier than these other postkim. He was, he was, he he was, he was a, he was a, he was several decades older than the rest of them. He was what well, he was perhaps the very first Chuva I found on the subject of banknotes. And Shlomo Kluger was also a uh, mid 19th century posik. So we're going to discuss in roughly chronological order the different perspectives that these poskim took on banknotes. And again, the, the, the three or four perspectives they have are pretty much representative of the spectrum of possibilities that Halacha might have toward banknotes. From Shlomo Megra, his tshuva, wasn't, his tshuva was actually not focusing primarily on banknotes. His tshuva was focusing on a document called, an instrument called a mamrani, or a mamram. The, the, mamram was, the, the mamrani was an old medieval instrument. It was basically a form of transfer, easily transferable IOU. The Talmud and the classic halacha has complicated rules. An ordinary shtarchov, an ordinary, uh, an ordinary bill of indebtedness, there are, there are some very strict and sometimes cumbersome rules for how to transfer it. The Mamrani was meant, uh, was, it, was a medieval design, it was a commercial instrument designed by Jews in the medieval period to be an easily transferable IOU. Somebody would issue one that he committed, commits to pay the bearer essentially a certain amount of money, and it would say, this sum is payable to the bearer, kind of like we would call a bearer bond, and that would then be, be transferred between businessmen, it would be traded, assuming the person who issued it had some... Uh, reputation for, for, for soundness and so on, that would be, tr- that would be traded. So Ramashul Megra is discussing, initially discussing the status of the Mamrani in Halacha. He's discussing, specifically he's discussing a, a civil law question, a Choshen Mishpat question. He's discussing the question of whether if someone damages someone else's, damages or loses, he's a shomer and a custodian and loses someone else's Mamrani, is he liable? If you, use, if you lose real property, like uh, a gold bar, or a chicken, or a bushel of wheat, then, then you're chayev. There are laws of Shomer, there are laws of Mazik. That's classic Bavakama stuff, classic Bavmetziah stuff. If you're responsible for damage, or your, your carelessness results in the loss of property in your, under your custodianship, you're chayev. However, shtaros, the halacha is, shtaros are excluded. If you have an instrument, if you have somebody's IOU, the, the holder of the IOU gives it to you to watch, and you lose it, even though that's negligent and reckless, and even though the creditor might thereby lose the opportunity to collect his debt, if he can't locate the IOU, he may not be able to win against the debtor, even though you're clearly responsible in a moral sense, al you are potter because shtaros are called ein gufa as we, as we alluded to earlier, Shtaros instruments are in a special category in halacha. They have different rules for a variety of halachas in Chosh Mishpat and Yerdea and Arachayim. And one of the halachas is that the laws of Shomer don't apply, generally don't apply to Shtaros. And another one is that even Mazik, there's a discussion about Ein Gufa even Mazik may not apply to Shtaros. Mazik, there's a Dina, there's Dina de Garmi, there are other halachas that come into play, but the, but, but the laws of, of civil liability are much weaker with regard to shtaros, than with regard to, than with regard to actual standard you know, normal assets. So the question is, what category to put this put this mamrani into? 
So, Rabbi Shalom Igra, in particular, is dealing with a curious Talmudic rule. On the one hand, a shtar is called Engufa Maman, and therefore has much weaker rules of liability for damage and loss. On the other hand, there's a halacha, if someone has wheat, a bushel of wheat, the halacha is you're allowed to sell wheat with a cer- up, to a, with up to a certain level of impurities. Wheat is understood to not be, they didn't have the same levels of purification and refinement techniques we have today. So the halacha was you're allowed to sell wheat with a certain amount of impurities in it. Once the impurities are removed, you're not allowed to insert them back in. But if they're still there from the, from the normal harvesting, you're allowed to leave them in so you can sell what actually amounts to only 98% of a bushel of wheat. You're allowed to sell it as a full bushel if the last 2% are natural impurities. That's your, that, that's your right under the standard customs that were in place back then. So the Gemara says, if Reuven has a bushel of wheat, which he can sell as one bushel of wheat, and it actually has 98% wheat and 2% junk in it. So Shimon comes along and does Ruvain the dubious favor of purifying his wheat, of removing the, the junk. Now Ruvain only has 98% of a bushel of wheat. Ruvain can no longer sell his wheat as a bushel. It's only 98% of a bushel. He can't reinsert the junk. That you're not allowed to do. Once it comes out, you're not allowed to put it back in. So Ruvain is now going to, paradoxically, Ruvain's going to lose money. When Shimon took out the dirt from his wheat, Ruvain can now only sell the remaining wheat for less than he could have sold the full bushel. You can argue people are not being rational if they're willing to pay $100 for a bushel that they know is 2% junk. They should be willing to pay the same $100 for a 98% of, of a bushel but pure wheat. I don't know why people aren't more rational about it, but that's the halacha. That's the reality. The reality is that Ruvain will no longer get the same price for his 98% of a bushel of pure wheat than he would have gotten for his 100% of a bushel of 98% pure wheat. That was the reality. So the halacha is, Shimon is actually chayev for purifying the wheat, because he costs Ruvain money. So the Ramashol Negra is trying to understand, how is that different from destroying a shtar? The shtar itself is worthless, and therefore it's called engufa mamon, so if you destroy it, you don't pay for it. If I take a rock, a rock is also worthless, but because the rock being in the wheat enabled Ruvain to sell the wheat from a higher price, Shimon has to pay for taking out the rock. So what's the difference? Why is a rock any more gufa mamon than a shtar is. What's the difference between a rock, which the rock is valuable to Ruvain because it allows him to sell his wheat at a slightly inflated price, and a shtar, which allows Ruvain to collect his debt? Why is Shimon chaya for the removal of the rock and not chaya for the destruction of the shtar? What's the difference? So Mishol Megra is struggling with this question. At one point, he introduces a, an interesting standard, and this seems to be his conclusion, his maskana. He says, when you destroy a shtar, you only destroyed the proof. If the facts were to be established by some other method, if the debtor is honest and agrees, you can still collect the debt. The shtar is only a question of proof. If the, the, the actual existence of the shtar is not really malu or murid, he discusses if you lost the shtar, someone else could find it, so you can't collect the debt because it might be doubly collected. But putting that aside, if the shtar was burned, and you can prove the shtar was burned, you can still collect the debt. If the, if, the, if the debtor agrees that the debt is still, is still in force, you can still collect the debt. So the shtar has no intrinsic value. The shtar is simply a question of proof, and if the facts could be established independently, you would still collect the debt. When it comes to the rock, that's not the case. Even if we know exactly what happened to the rock, you still can only sell the remaining wheat for the, for the price of whatever the wheat is. The rock is, uh, it's not a question of proof, it's just, the rock is objectively the reality. The, the, rock, the rock objectively enables you to sell the wheat for more than you can sell it with no rock. And therefore, getting back to our topic, where Mishol Igra says, when you deal with a Mamrani, so it's true that if you can't produce the Mamrani, you can't collect the debt. That's true. If you don't have your IOU, you're not gonna, the bank's not going to pay you. However, he says, that's only because you can't prove it. If, however, he says, if, if it was burned with witnesses and there's no, there's no danger of double collection, then, they, uh, then, then if, if, the, if the halacha is you would have to pay, that would be called engufa mamon. However, and, and here's, the, here's the punchline, he says, if the law would be, as it is with regard to banknotes, that even if it is burned, you're still potter, the, even if the customer, the, the citizen, walks into the bank, he provides witness testimony, he provides video footage, that his banknotes were burned in a fire, and he can show exactly how many were burned. Here's my $100 bill, it was burned in the fire. The bank does not pay him anything. 
unlike the case of Ashtar Chov, it's just a question of proof. Banknote has somehow taken on a life of its own. It's not simply a question of proof. The government will not issue you any money, even any replacement, any money, even if you can prove that the banknotes were destroyed. That is called Gufa Mamun. Therefore, Meshulam Egra's position is that banknotes are considered Gufa Mamun. They're considered the same as ordinary money because it's not simply proof of something. It's because the, the value is in the notes themselves. If the notes are destroyed, even if you can prove it, you will not get any money. The truth is, this actually is not really the case with modern banknotes. You are actually able to get the government to issue you new money if you can prove the old ones were destroyed. The, I, I looked this up once. The, the general rule is that if you can produce more than half of a bill, or enough of a bill so that uh, there's no danger there that someone else is going to present the other half of the bill and collect it twice, then the bill will be exchanged for a new one. If you don't have that, if, you, if the bills are totally destroyed then you can actually file a special application. You submit uh, whatever evidence you have and whatever remainder of the bills you have, and special investigative agencies in, in the government will try to ascertain whether it's conclusively been demonstrated that you had these monies and they were destroyed. And if they were, they actually will issue you new ones. The, these agencies apparently have done some, uh, some remarkable things. They've... They, 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 they've They've, they've dealt with burn money, they've dealt with money that had been digested by animals and had passed through the, tr- the digestive tract. They've analyzed them to see if they were conclusively proven to, to actually be here, in which case they will issue you new money. So Michel Megra understood, in his time, he understood the law to be that if the, the bills are not replaceable, that even if you can prove conclusively that they're gone, they are not replaceable, and that makes them gufa mamon, that makes them the same as currency, not like shtaris. According to him, it would be debatable whether our money today, you'd have to find out more about the law and the current policy, but according to my reading, according to what I understand, his logic actually would say that it's not clear whether modern money is the same, is the same as his money, because our money is replaceable. Again, putting, assuming you can prove correctly that you're not committing a fraud, you're not hiding the money somewhere else, the money actually is replaceable. But I'll call upon him Rav Igra, and his position is actually endorsed by the Marsham, which I didn't include in the handouts, but the Marsham mentions Ramashul Igra and seems to like it that, that, that this is the standard. He mentions other Akronim as well, the Chasm Sofer that we're going to see soon. But he says that according to Ramashul Igra, he mentions Ramashul Igra as far that the Iker is whether it's just a question of proof or whether the value actually resides in the entity itself. Insofar as the value resides in the entity itself, that's considered Matbea. If the value resides somewhere else, it's just a proof to the value, then that's considered Shtaris and has different dinim. But this is the shita of Ramashul Megra. This is something of an outlier. Most postkim do not use this standard. But he was one of the Dalitara of that time. This is the standard he felt was critical, whether the value resides in the item itself and is, and, and is irretrievably lost if the item is destroyed, or, or whether the value really resides somewhere else and the, and the, money is, and the bill is simply an, an instrument, uh, a pointer to that value, in which case uh, that would be considered ein which has a variety of consequences, la one of which is whether civil liability, but we'll discuss various other liability, various other halachic ramifications as we go. We'll turn now to the tshuva of Rav Moshe Teitelbaum, the Heshiv Moshe. He, his tshuva is relatively brief also. He says, Nishalti, I was asked, he says, Imbanki Kira. So his, his Kira is the government, the, the czar. He says the... The question was, are the banknotes of the government, do they have dinmos or dinshtaros? Again, two choices are, are they considered money, currency, or are they considered shtaros? Which again, shtaros is a legitimate halacha category, but it's one that has a variety of special halachas, different from that of regular money and regular metatalin. Now, he'll mention some of these ramifications as he goes through the tshuva, but conceptually, that was the question he was asked. Do we treat banknotes as money or as shtaros, as instruments? Oh, examples he gives you right away. Lenny and Shvua and Shomer. Those are, the, those are similar to the examples that Michelle Negra talks about. The laws of Shomer, both the liability of a Shomer as well as the obligation to swear if he, if he has a claim that he's, that he's putter, that, he, that he's not liable. Those halachas do not apply to shtaris, do not apply to instruments. Do they apply to money? Very common shayla. I give you an envelope full of cash to wash, to watch. You're, you, you lose it, you say it wasn't your fault, someone stole it from you and it wasn't your fault. I say maybe you were negligent, normally a shomer has to swear. We don't actually actually take oaths today, but al 
you would have to swear. The question is, or and even the liability itself, the most liability of a shomer does not apply to shtaris. When it comes to pshia, when it comes to gross negligence, there is an opinion of the Rambam that pshia, you're liable even for shtaris. Many posts can, maybe most posts can disagree. Lalacha, your potter, even for pshia on shtaris, as I understand it. So again, it's very, a very practical case. Someone gives you an envelope full of cash to wash, cash to watch, you lose it, you're negligent, you, you leave it somewhere, you forget about it, forgetting might be pshia, might not be pshia, but let's say, you're, let's say even you'd be liable if it was ordinary property, but it's bills, it's dollar bills, it's hundred dollar bills. Are you chayiv or pater? Nafkamina, is, are, are banknotes considered shtaros or, or matbeya? Matbeya, you're chayiv as a shomer, shtaros, you're not. Pidyon bachar, can you use it for pidyon aben? This is one of the most widely discussed nafkaminas. Today, people are used to using silver for pidyon aben. There is no requirement whatsoever to use silver for pidyon aben. You can, you can, you can, you can do pidyon aben with any item of, with any, anything of value. With potato chips, with svarim, with uh, a ring, like you do a wedding with a ring, with uh, a laptop. You, you can do pidyon aben with pretty much anything. There's a question where our minhag to use actual silver comes from. It's, uh, I don't remember offhand, but it, it's, a, it, it's, a relatively, uh, it's a relatively minor minhag. The ikra alacha pidyon aben is you can pretty much use any, it has to have a certain value. The value has to be that of five slime, which are, which are a certain coin of silver. But once you reach that value of whatever it is, so that you have to give property of that value. Can you use banknotes? It was pashut, in other words, you can use whatever the local currency was, gold coins, silver coins, copper coins. What about banknotes? Can you use paper money? Can you give a $100 bill for pidyon aben? Can you do pidyon aben with $100 bills? So the question is, they're really shtarechov alakira. They're really government-issued uh, IOUs, bonds, bills. So is that shtaros? The halach is. Pitting a ben cannot be done with shtaros. They can be done with almost any type of assets, but as we keep saying, shtaros and halacha have many unusual rules, many different rules, different from regular assets. You can do pitting a ben with any ordinary asset, but with a few exceptions, one of which is shtaros. So if we view banknotes as shtaros, can't use them for pitting a ben. If we view them as money, you could use them pitting a ben. Again, the fact that they're not silver doesn't matter. So that's the question. So, the Heish of Moshe, Rabbi Teitelbaum, he argues that they are money. We're not going to get into the exact details of his proof, but he argues that they are money, and the principle he establishes is that are they, are they easily used, are they widely, universally used as what we call a medium of exchange. The modern economic thought on money, going back to the 19th century, says that money fulfills three or four functions. Today, today, we usually say, today we usually say three functions. Money has, we say that money is, a, uh, money is a medium of exchange. Instead of having to do barter, instead of having to trade what you need for what you have, you, you, you do it in terms of money, which is a universal uh, in-between between the items that people actually want. It's a... It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a store of value. It's a, if, if, you have, if, you, if, if you have an asset and you, instead of keeping the cow around or the house around, you want to just store it somewhere in terms of some easily, uh, in terms of some way of storing its value without keeping the asset, which is subject to accidents and damage and upkeep and so on, you convert it to money and you store it in money. It is a unit of value. So we, we denominate the value of things in terms of, in terms of money. We say this is this pizza is worth fifteen dollars. The house is worth five hundred thousand dollars. The the computer is worth uh, twelve hundred dollars. So we use money as a as a uh, as a measure of value. So one of the one of the key issues of money is that it is a medium of exchange. It's used for, for buying and selling. Instead of if you don't have a medium of exchange, you have to do barter. So one of the key functions of money is we use it as a medium of exchange. So Rabbi Teitelbaum says that that is, that is what defines something as money, something which is widely, universally, generally used, usable as a medium of exchange, that is money, something which is not, is not money. Says Rabbi Teitelbaum, when it comes to the banknotes of the government, he says, you can easily buy anything with them, you can go to any vendor, any store, you want to buy something, you present your banknotes, and he accepts them, again, He's not getting into whether they're legal tender, they're not legal tender. He, he, is, he is silent on the question of law. He's focusing solely on the 
practical question, can they be readily, easily used as a medium of exchange? Can you buy arbitrary items with them? The answer is yes. In his time, the banknotes that he knew of were widely accepted as, a, as payment, as a medium of exchange, and therefore that is what makes something money. And he says that makes it money for all or general halakhic purposes, he says. They're called gufa mamon, they're not like shtaras, he says. Lenin no, no, shmira. Shmira, we mentioned earlier, the, the liability for custodianship only applies to gufa mamon, not to instruments, shtaras. Oh no, the laws of oh no, the law, cer- certain aspects of the laws of frauds only apply to, only apply to gufa mamon, to ordinary property, not to shtaras. What about banknotes? Again, today, today's banknotes are pretty, uh, pretty clear values, but if, if you find a case of ona on money, maybe foreign currency, he says that ona, ona applies to banknotes, shvua, the laws of oaths, which also only apply to gufamam and natashtaris, pidyon bacharadam, it applies to pidyon aben as well. They're considered ordinary metaltalin, ordinary matbeya, it's gufamam as opposed to shtaris, the, ba- the banknotes are called gufamamon as opposed to shtaris. Again, for all these purposes, he makes no exceptions. Cain nearly butter. I think this is clear, he says. Again, he thinks this is eminently rational, he says, eminently reasonable. Kavan, again, he reiterates, since you can buy anything with banknotes, they are easily usable as a medium of exchange, universally usable as a medium of exchange. Havan gufamamon. This is one of the two major approaches to the, def- to the definition of money we find in the postkim that money is defined by that which is a medium of exchange. Paper money certainly qualifies today. Paper money, certainly in whatever country it's issued and is used, some, some currencies in other countries as well, like the dollar in many countries, but certainly paper money issued by the local government, except for certain pathological cases with runaway inflation where stores won't take their own, their own, money, their own, their own country's money. In general, in, in, in normal countries, the, the government-issued money Paper money is widely, universally used as a medium of exchange. According to the standard of Rabbi Teitelbaum, that is what makes something money. That's what makes it considered not shtaris. When Chazal said shtaris were ain gufamamon, it's because shtaris were not universally accepted by stores. Yes, you can buy a shtar, you can sell a shtar. Speculators and investors you would buy and sell shtaris. The grocery store wouldn't take a shtar. If you walk into the grocery store and say, I don't have cash, but uh, Ruvain down the block owes me $100, would you take this? The grocery store would say, no, take it to a bank, take it to a broker or something. I don't take shtaris. But banknotes, everyone takes banknotes. So according to the Heish of Moshe, that is the standard. Anything which is widely used, universally used as a medium of exchange, that is considered money. Anything which is not, is not. Again, Rav Asher Weiss and contemporary posts can say, when it comes to cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency does not yet meet the standard. You will find occasionally uh, stores that do it, either as a gimmick or even as a non-gimmick. Tesla briefly said it was going to accept Bitcoin. It promptly reversed itself about a month later or something. But there there are very few places in the world that accept Bitcoin more and more. People say they're going to. They will. They might. This kind of thing can certainly change. But currently, Ravasher and others point out, something like Bitcoin is certainly not uh, universally accepted as a medium of exchange and therefore would not satisfy the definition of currency of Matbeah, according to this standard of the Heish of Moshe. The Chassam Sofer, in a couple of Chuvas, who was, again, almost an exact contemporary of the Heish of Moshe, also felt that banknotes generally are considered Kesef, but he gives a very different reason. He focuses on the legal tender aspect. In one of his Chuvas, he says, he begins by saying, the first Chuva on the handout, he says, his correspondent complained that Gaones Manenu, contemporary poskim, early 19th century poskim, they would administer shvuos for claims about banknotes, and they apply the Dine Shomrim to them again. Dine Shomrim, the laws of custodians, the, the laws of shvua, these halachas do not apply to shtaris. So the, the Gedoli Torah in the Chasam Sofer's time apparently did not treat banknotes as shtaris, like the Mo- they held like the Heish of Moshe. Chasam Sofer's correspondent was unhappy. He felt banknotes should be treated like Shtaris. So that's what, uh, that's what he asked. The Chassam Sofer begins by making a very cogent uh, counter-argument. Uh, and, and, and it's really very difficult to uh, refute this. He says, why are you stopping, he says, at banknotes? 
Let's talk about good old-fashioned coins. He says, coins today are not worth the, are, are worth much more, significantly more, than the precious metals that they're in. Certainly they are today. Today, the, the, the precious metals are worth virtually nothing. In some cases, they're, they're even worth a little more for the penny, but in most cases, the quarter, the, the dollar coin, even the dime, they're worth substantially more than the metal in them. That was already true in the Chesim Sofer's time, he says. When we ha- he says, Rubam bismanenu. Most coins in his time are not, are not worth as much as the face value of the coins. Sometimes, in, in, in exigent circumstances, in wartime, they're not even worth a third of the face value. He says, again, today they're worth even much less, I think, often. But in his time, they weren't worth uh, nearly the, anything close to the face value. They, were, they, they weren't even worth a third, he says. And they're, they're only worth what they're worth because of the, the stamp, because of the, what they've been minted as. And that's you know, the, the value society or the government gives to them, he says. That should be Engufamamun. According to you, he says that banknotes are Engufamamun because they're worth more than the paper they're printed on. Coins have the same problem. So according to you, no money should be considered Gufamamun. All money should have all these problems. The Dine Shomer shouldn't apply to, uh, to, to, to any money, even coins. As we're going to see, Pitina Ben. You can't, be put, you can't, you can't do Pitina Ben with... Uh, you can't do pitting a ben with, uh, with coins by, by this logic. He's going to make that point in, in, uh, in, in his other tshuva, I think. He's going to make this point, that according to the, if you don't say this, he says, you can't do pitting a ben with coins either, because all coins are considered engu for mamun v'zmanazem. Maybe in Chazal's time they were worth something close to the actual precious metal in them, but certainly not today, he says. So, banknotes, all coins, he says. Why aren't, if, if your logic is right, why aren't, why aren't all money considered today engu for mamun? Says the Chazam Sofer, the rule is Geder HaMatbeya. What is the definition of Matbeya? It is fiat money. Money that's value derives by government edict. Gazar HaMelech the king has decreed upon us, Shetetzet, that it should be accepted as legal tender. Umishim HaMayin, someone who refuses to accept the, the government-issued money, government-endorsed money. Yichayev Rosho Lamalchus. They used to be pretty strict about these things. It wasn't just some kind of... Uh, some kind of technical violation. It was a capital offense to refuse to accept, to refuse to accept government-sanctioned money. And therefore, he says, Halacha takes that into account as well. Dina de Malchusa Din. He invokes the principle Dina Malchusa Dina. Din Emes, Umish And that's the way money works. Money is defined by that which the, the government considers money. That's a governmental prerogative. The government considers it money. That itself gives it the value of gives it the value of money. Chasim Sofer, in both his tshuvas, brings the Gemara and Psachim. The Gemara says there are three things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was uh, part of his initial plan for the world. They're, they're, all, they're all aspects of the way the world works that are necessary for the running of the world. One of them is that Hashem willed that the world should be created in such a way that there should be a concept of money, that there should be a, a functional system, functioning systems of money of uh, mediums of exchange. So he says that it doesn't matter what it's made out of, gold, silver, paper, uh, Hashem agrees to this, the, this is the way human civilization works, Hashem himself planned this all along, that the shtar, he says, shtar, he says, is, uh, is, is not Gufa Maman, he says you don't have to take it, nobody has to accept it. Economically, if it's a very secure and solvent uh, issuer, Everyone might take it, but there's no law. You don't have to take it. it, it it's not. It's not a. It, it's, it's not a. Practically, it might be widely accepted, like the like the, by the Haitian Moshe standard. It might actually work if it was so universally accepted. But legally, it has no. It has no standard. As, it has no standing as legal tender. That's not considered money. So says the Chassam Sofer. So therefore, because of this, because the standard is because the standard is legal tender, banknotes are a a one uh, legal tender. You can make an issue with it. He says. It's like Ephron. The Gemara says we learn from Ephron the laws of Kedushin. Ephron, he gave Arbamea Shekel Kesef. We learn Kedusha Isha Bekesef from Ephron. You can use banknotes for Kedushin, he says. We never do that. We use a ring always, he says. But we use a ring, of course. But you could. You can Mikaj an Isha with. Uh, with uh, you can Mikaj an Isha with. Um, with uh, banknotes. The, there, there was an article that I was most intrigued by. A couple of Jews, a couple of techies who work in cryptocurrency. They exchanged non-fungible tokens. We're not going to get into what NFTs are exactly, but they're an, even, they're an even more crazy version of cryptocurrency. They pulled out their phones and they exchanged uh, 
they exchange these NFT cryptocurrency versions of rings, would that be a valid Kedushin? Probably not, according to the Chassam Sefer. What, what makes banknotes a valid Kedushin is that they are, they are legal tender. Cryptocurrency is generally not legal tender. There's one country, I think Ecuador, that recently made the news by deciding that cryptocurrency Bitcoin would be legal tender. But that's the exception that proves the rule. It's generally not legal tender. But the Chassam Sefer says banknotes are legal tender, and therefore they work for Kedusha Isha as well. They work... Yes? that's backed by the government and so are you meaning specifically central bank or for example if a very large bank within a country were to back up the money and it was accepted because it was a reliable enough bank that would also be considered uh, uh, you know in the category of legal tender yes so I I, 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 I I touched on this in my introduction to the share I said that the postgame generally used the term banknotes over a period of a century or so and they still some of them use it even today the, as I mentioned, you can read the Wikipedia article for banknotes. The banknotes do have a complex and a complex history. They, 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 they did begin by being the, the, their original forms were they were issued by private people, either goldsmiths or pr- private commercial banks. Eventually, they began to be issued exclusively, primarily and exclusively by central banks, by governments and their banks. Governments passed laws. England passed a law in the early, early to mid-19th century that that the Bank of England had a monopoly on the issuance of banknotes. We, as, as I said, we generally don't, I mean, I generally don't know, you, you have to know a good deal more of the history than, than I do. It's not always clear from these various chuvas what exactly was, which banks were the ones issuing these banknotes and what exactly was the legal framework regarding these banknotes. So the, the Haitian Moshe and Michel Negra, for example, they don't discuss the, the legalities at all. Michelle Negra just discusses whether they would be replaced if you prove they were destroyed. The Asian Moshe just discusses whether they were, uh, they were, they were, a, they were a, a practical and universal medium of exchange. The Chassam Sofer is the first one who brings in the law. He emphasizes that the law requires you to accept it as legal tender. I would assume that the law only did so with regard to central bank or government-issued banknotes. I assume the law didn't have a didn't make it a capital offense to refuse to accept banknotes from a private bank. I don't know for sure. I don't know if in the Chassam Sofer's time, in the Chassam Sofer's city and country, the, the central bank did have a monopoly on banknotes, and, and therefore all banknotes were central banknotes, and were all therefore legal tender, whether there were different kinds of banknotes, and some of them were legal tender. I, I don't actually know. But the, but the bottom line is, the, what, what we do know, what the Chassam Sofer makes clear, is that banknotes are considered kasef matbea, the equivalent of Matbeya, if and only if they are legal tender. Exactly what was legal tender in his time, I, 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 can't, I can't say for sure. All right, so you would distinguish, for example, a bear bond, which can be issued by a large corporation, that would not necessarily be in the same category. Absolutely, yes. Uh, according to the Chazim okay. I would absolutely say that. And he, he, okay. he almost makes that point explicitly. He says, as opposed to a Shtar Chov, even if it's an Asher, which is over Lesocher, because he's so reliable and his... Everyone knows he's good for it, so it, it's freely acceptable. Merchants will easily take it, he says. It doesn't matter, because no one will force him to take it. There's no compulsion. There's no, there's no mandated requirement. There's no mandated duty of taking it. So he, he pretty much says, yes, that bearer bonds, according to him, would not be considered kesef. They would be considered stars. Yes. That's how I understand it. So he goes on. It would work for Pitina Ben as well, he says. He can be pogged to hectish with it. He says... Uh, he says, he says, he does have one exception. Master Shani, he says, he says that uh, Master Shani is, is different. He says, he says that the, he says, Benadim Lachavero, anytime you're dealing with a civil transaction between different economic actors, he says, even Hektish, Pidgin Hektish is you're buying from Hektish, it's like you're, it's, it's basically a commercial transaction. You're buying something from Hektish. And you know, the, the Hektish gives you its, uh, its, its Hektish item, and in exchange, you pay cash. And then Hektish takes the cash and buys whatever they need. So he says, uh, for that, the standard he just used would apply. Anything which is legal tender, anything which is legal tender would apply. However, he suggests that, the, that maybe when it comes to Hektish, we could, say, we could say it differently. He says, maybe when it comes to. Maybe, maybe, maybe when it comes to Pidyon Bukhar, he says, 
we could say Pidyon Bechar might be one exception. He says, even Hektish and Maishashani, yes, but Pidyon Bechar might be different, he says. Why? Because Pidyon Ben is from Akash Baruch not from a Gizbar, not the, somehow he feels Pidyon Ben is more direct than purchasing Hektish from a Gizbar. Pidyon Ben is a transaction between you and Akash Baruch The Kohen's involved also, but, the, but the, it's basically between you and Akash Baruch and Akash Baruch give and Akash Baruch established the share of five slime. So he says, maybe when it comes to Akash Baruch you can't bring in, uh, it, you know, it's, uh, all, law, all law melts away when it comes to Akash Baruch. When it comes to normal civil transactions, we look to the law to decide what is legal tender. When it comes to transactions between you and God, it, it doesn't make sense to talk about what, what the law considers legal tender or not. So he says, um, since it's only that, uh, that when, it comes to, when it comes to Pidgin Bachar, he says, uh, he, say, he says maybe banknotes wouldn't be good, so I'm not sure, then the question is, uh, I'm not sure again. He, he said before that our coins themselves are not worth uh, the face value either. And they only have their face value because of the law. So according to him, I guess, that, that wouldn't work either. You'd have to be po de the Bukhar only for the, the metal value of the coins, not for the, not for the legal tender value of the coins. Because when it comes to Akash Baruch, he says a dying Tarhi, and he's not sure about this innovative Svara. But he proposes at least that when it comes to Pidina Ben, because you're dealing straight with God, we don't care about the law, and we have to look only at the intrinsic, inherent, uh, before society came along, value of the item itself. Of course, I mean, I, what I just said is not strictly true. Every, everything only has value because of society. If I ask you how much, uh, how much a slice of pizza costs, it, it's a meaningless question outside of society. In a place where pizza goes for a dollar a slice, it's worth a dollar. In a place where pizza's more expensive, it goes for three dollars, it's three dollars. It doesn't make sense to talk about any kind of value outside of society. But law, other governments, when, it, when you're dealing with God, you can't invoke the, the authority of other governments. You can only invoke the intrinsic, intrinsic value based on society without uh, dicta the government for how much something should be worth. All right. Let's take a look at his other tshuva, where he's going to reiterate, going to cover much of the same ground. He says, again, another Rav asked him, what's the halachas of banknotes? What's the halacha of banknotes? The, the, the Chassam Sofer's correspondent says, uh, today, banknotes, today banknotes make up most of the money in circulation in his time. Do they have, are they have a din of kasef or a din of shtar? So the Chassam Sofer's correspondent says, he remembers... He remembers from the Gedolim of, uh, of the previous generation, I guess, from the, the, the major Gedolim, they would not allow Pidyon Ben with banknotes. So the, previously, the, the Chassam Sofer's other correspondent in his first tshuva, he says, at least Ligabe Shomrim and Shvua, the Gedolim did give banknotes the din of Kesef, but, but, but these Gedolim, maybe they were different Gedolim, maybe they were the same, the same Gedolim, but they distinguished between Bukhar and other things, as per the Chassam Sofer's distinction. Anyway, the Chassam Sofer's correspondent wrote to him and says that he heard that the Gedolim, the Tmidachamim, didn't allow Pidyon Ben with banknotes. What is, the, what is the halacha about that? So, the Chassam Sofer refers to his other tshuva, another tshuva, presumably his first one. He says, I don't want to repeat the whole thing here, but I'm going to explain the Iker, the, the, the Iker Shita, he reiterates uh, his same Shita here. He says that, he says that, in general, a shtar is decoupled from the value of the, the medium on which it's written. A shtar is typically worth a lot more than the value of the paper. It could be worth less. If you have a shtar written on a piece of gold, he says, it might be worth less than the value of the gold. Either way, the defining characteristic of a shtar is that it is, the value is not related to the underlying value of the medium. However, he says, money, he says, the money certainly halacha treats as having the intrinsic value of the value it's assigned by the government, even if that's worth much more than the inherent value of the metal. He says, here he refers to the money of the, the Ottoman money, Ottoman Empire, Moza Tugar, they're not even worth a quarter, he says, of the, they were still using precious metals, apparently, but they were, but the, the face value, the Chesim Sefer tells us, was substantially more than the value of the underlying metal. And that certainly has the halacha of matbea. So he says again, the rule is, anything the melech, anything whose value derives from the melech is called gufa mamon, anything whose value derives just from the, it's being useful as a proof to something else, is considered ein gufa mamon. 
So he says, again, paper money and coins today has the same exact halacha, and uh, the, the, both of them, the value derives from the fiat of the government, and both of them have the money. He brings the same gemara in Sachem, and he says, you can use it for, for a pigeon of hectish, he says, because it's a gemara in The gemara says, kesef, you're pojin bo hectatius, and, uh, and, and, and the gemara says, a shtaris, you cannot be. The gemara implies that there is no example of a shtar, which is pod, uh, which is pod uh, hectatius. No star, not even a, uh, not even a banknote. It must be banknote is not a star. When the Gemara says star, it means things that have the din of star. But banknotes don't have the din of star, and 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 uh, and, and, uh, and 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 you could be hectish, but they don't have the din of star. He says that the that the banknotes are considered kasef and not staris. However, he says. Right, and you know, his raya is because because the Gemara says that the, the, the Gemara says that kesef is uh, the, kesef is poden boakdeshos, and that's why you can mikdash boaseisha, as opposed to a shtar, you're not poden boakdeshos, and that's why you can't use it for kedushin. The halacha l'maisa is that you can, but the Gemara wanted to say maybe you shouldn't be able to use shtar for kedushin because you're not poden boakdeshos. So the Chassam Sofer says, why don't we stay shtar demalchus yochiach, a banknote is yochiach that it can be used for kedusha isha, even though it's ain poden boakdeshos. Must be there's no such thing. The regular staros, you cannot be potent boktacious and you cannot be Makash Bosi Isha. And banknotes, you could be Makash Bosi Isha and you could be potent boktacious. So there was no example of the, of the, of the Gemara saying of a star which is not good which is not good for hectish, but is good for uh, but is good for Kedushin. So you see that anything that's good for Kedushin, he assumes that a banknote would be good for Kedushin, would would therefore also be good for Hectish, even though you're dealing with God. Nevertheless, anything that's good for Anything that's good for Kedusha Isha is good for Ectatius as well, and therefore um, you can use banknotes for both, both Pidyon Hectish and for Kedusha Isha. However, he says again, he, he reiterates his one exception, but not for Pidyon Bachar. He says, because, again, even Pidyon Bachar, he says, that even, even with coins, he says, Post can say you shouldn't rely on the face value, it should, have, it should have the right amount of silver, and you should not rely on the face value of the coins, and the reason is, again, because we don't deal with fiat money, we, we, we ignore the fiat value when we deal with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That Din Malchusa works for ordinary civil transactions, including Pidyon Hektish, but not Pidyon Bachar. Pidyon Bachar is straight to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he says, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu then gives it to the Kohen. We, we, we can't invoke Din Malchusa when we're dealing with Malchusa Durakia. And he's not sure about this, he says, but this is his, this is his shita again, that what makes something money is the status of legal tender, and that works for almost all areas of halacha, including Pidyon Hektish, certainly Kedusha Isha, and Shvua, and Hilcha Shomrim, and pretty much everything except for Pidyon Bachar. Pidyon Bachar, since Pidyon Bachar is directly from Akash Baruchu, then we can't look at the question of fiat of Din Malchusa. Just briefly consider one last tshuva, that of Rav Shlomo Kluger. He says, again, it was a case of Shomer. Someone had money in custody for somebody else. It was stolen. And the question is whether the laws of Shomer apply to money. They certainly apply to coins. That, that's clear from the Gemara, that the laws of Shomer apply to gold and silver coins. But the question was, do the laws of Shomer apply to banknotes? Maybe they're shtaris, and, they're, and, they don't, and they don't have a din of Shomer. So he says, This is a major nafkamina as well whether something is matbea or shtaris. Matbea, by definition, there's no ribbis. If you borrow a certain amount of money and you pay back the same amount of money, then there is, then there is no ribbis. But if you borrow other commodities, and pay, even if you pay back the same commodity, that could be an issue of ribbis. Rav Asher Weiss, in his share on Bitcoin, spends a lot of time on this. That a big nafkamina of whether Bitcoin is going to be money or not is whether you can denominate loans in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin is money then you can, currency, you can denominate a loan in currency. If Bitcoin is not currency, it's a commodity, that's sub is sell. You're not allowed to, to denominate, there are certain exceptions of yesh loan and so on, but, norm, but ordinarily you're not allowed to denominate a, uh, a loan in non-matbeah. So Shlomo Kluger says that, uh, that, that uh, that's the question, whether banknotes are considered, you wouldn't be allowed to denominate a loan, usually you don't denominate a loan in banknotes as opposed to dollars or coins or anything, but if banknotes are considered uh, not considered matbeah, you wouldn't be allowed to denominate a loan in banknotes. 
So unlike the, the Gedolim in the first Shuvah, the Chatham Sofer, who said that we do apply the laws of Shomer to banknotes, and the, even the Gedolim in the second Shuvah only didn't do Pidina Ben with banknotes, Rav Shlomo says he heard from Kama Gedolim that they in general do not give the din of, they, that they do not give the din of, uh, of Matpea to banknotes, uh, contrary to the Heish of Moshe and the Chatham Sofer. Then he brings from the Sidra Hagon Milisa, the Siddur of the Gon of Lisa. The Gon of Lisa was Rabbi Yaakov of Lisa, Rabbi Yaakov of Loberbaum. He wrote a Siddur, which was really a, uh, you know, like the article Siddur has, in the end of the Siddur it has a couple of pages of halachic guidance. Well, most of the Siddur of the Gon of Lisa, the important part of the Siddur of the Gon of Lisa, was a compendium of halachic, uh, brief, uh, brief, user-friendly, uh, layman-accessible halachic guidance. It was an extraordinarily popular work. It was reprinted numerous times. It was a kind of uh, widely used as a handbook of halacha. The problem, I think, is when I looked into this is that the, the, there are so many layers of accretions of additional, additional halachas that were added in by editors and printers. It's difficult to know what was sometimes what was written by the Gon of Lisa himself, what was added on later. In particular, this, this halacha itself, I think, is not entirely clear. The, the Rosh Kluger was quoting it as the Gon of Lisa, but he writes there in the Siddur, apparently, ostensibly he writes in the Siddur, at least in the Dfus Stolkova, that ain't uh, podin benotin. You cannot use you cannot use banknotes or pidin ben because it is shtaris. Again, the minig of using dafka silver wasn't uh, apparently so universal. People used other types of materials as well, but not notes. Don't use banknotes. He wrote in the in the, in the siddur in, in his siddur. So Kasim Sarfer tried to argue that was a unique halacha pidin ben. Doesn't apply. To, that doesn't speak to its status as currency or not in general, but Roshan Kluger understands that it does. It's just one of a series of rulings he's quoting that in general we treat banknotes as shtaris, not as matbea. And therefore he says that if you're going to want to tell me that we should follow Din Malchusa and call it matbea, he says then we should also follow Din Malchusa. Um, He says that he, he says that uh, he says maybe for Pshia you'll be chayv if you follow Dina Malchusa, but he says for Gnevan Aveda if it was stolen, then you're going to be lost. Why? Mimanavshach. He says if you follow Dinenu, if you follow Ar Halacha, then we treat it as Shtaris, because we, we don't recognize the government's treating this as 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 money. If you follow the government, he says the government wouldn't wouldn't treat you as a shomer sacher, wouldn't give you the same level of liability beyond the scope of our share tonight. But he says according to government law, you wouldn't be chayev for for theft or, or loss of this case. He says so. He goes back and forth on this. He says that maybe you'll tell me that every shomer sacher should be. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not sure what he's saying over there, but I'll call upon him. He says that. Basically, he says that his, his inclination is to say that al pi halacha, for, for, for most halachic purposes, banknotes are not considered matbeah, they're considered notes, they're considered shtaris. He does entertain the possibility that because of din malchusodina, they would be considered matbeah. In general, he says we don't follow din malchusodina to, to be, uh, we don't follow din malchusodina to mechaia people. He goes back and forth on this, he says. But if they were banknotes, his halacha lamaisi comes out. That if they were banknotes, you'd be potter, because we would say Manavshach, he says. We would say that according to Dine Yisrael, they're considered shtaros, and there's no liability at all. And according to Dine Akum, he says, in this case, that in, according to Dine Akum, according to the dinim of the, the, the secular law, you'd be potter for another reason, he says. Because the, the Dine Akum, the, according to Dine Malchusa, you would not be considered a Shomer Sachar, because what makes you a Shomer Sachar in Halacha, he, he wasn't being paid to have custody of the money. The, the fact that he's allowed to use the money, according to Din Torah, would give him the right, would, since he has the privilege of using the money while he's holding it, that's, that's the halacha, and you're allowed to use money and trust it to your care, that makes you a shomer sacher. But according to the law, you're not allowed to use the money, and then you wouldn't be a shomer sacher, so you wouldn't be chayef. So that's when he comes out, I mean, of shach, you'd be potter. If you follow Dina Yisrael, then these notes are considered shtaras, and there's no chayef at all. If you follow Dina, if you follow Dina Malchusa, then you're not a shomer sacher, so you're not chayef for Gnev and Aveda, and therefore, if they're banknotes, he concludes that you are potter. Akalpan, I'm putting aside the te- technical details of Shomer, the position of Rav Shlomo Kluger is, unlike the Chatham Sofer, and unlike the, the Heish of Moshe and Rav Shlomo Negro, who all considered banknotes to be Gufa Mammon for a variety of reasons, he feels that the Iker and Halacha is that they are not considered Gufa Mammon unless we defer to Dina Malchusa. But in general, he says, we would, 
we would, in general, his inclination is we would not consider them. We would not consider them bear rather shtaris. The consensus of most poskim is not like him. The consensus of most poskim is like the Chasim Sofer that for, for one of a variety of reasons, either the reason of medium of universal medium of exchange as per the Hesh of Moshe, or the Chasim Sofer's reason of legal tender. For for for, for those reasons or for other reasons, those are the two main reasons. Most poskim say that paper money is considered. Paper money is considered matbea, and the Dine Shomer would apply. Pidinaben, we saw as a Shaila and the Chasim Sofer, but for many purposes, most posts can say that paper money would be considered matbea, uh, not shtaros, although again, that's not universal. There are noteworthy holdouts, such as Roshlomo Kloger.